Today's scripture reading is from Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we, excuse me, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Amen. So we are in a series, as you can see, looking at the power of Jesus in the book of Acts and seeing how that power has caused the first church to really grow exponentially and explosively there in the first century. And at first, of course, if you've been here, you've seen it. At first, it appeared to be for this church all, you know, sort of hugs and roses and rainbows and unicorns, yes, even those. But then starting in chapters 4 and 5, we begin to see some problems happening in the church. And at first, the problems are all external, right? There are beatings that begin to happen, some torture, some threats against the early church. But in chapter 6, we see that there's something new here altogether that begins to threaten the early church. And it's things, not on the outside, the things on the inside, on the inside of the church. But uh, if we'll look a little deeper, I hope we'll see why this brief passage here is included because it's not just a detour in the book. This passage is a brilliant blueprint for us on how to navigate church life and how to have hope for the future because what this chapter wonderfully, thankfully acknowledges is that sometimes life in even the very best churches can get sticky, difficult, and challenging and all God's people said, amen, yeah. So I wanna take a look this morning at how you and I and really anyone can survive church life long-term. How about that? So I'm going to ask, what do we need to survive the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs and all the really inevitable challenges we're going to face because of others and other people are going to face because of us along the way? What do we need to thrive in Christian community long term? Now, if you're here, you're, this is obviously sort of aimed a bit internally, but if you're new and a guest, you actually couldn't have picked a better weekend to be here because now you're going to hear a little bit of how we think behind the scenes. So what do we need to thrive long term? Three things here. There's a series of firsts this passage gives us. There's a first rule. For church, there's a first solution it gives us for problems. And finally, there's We find that solution through the first deacon, and we'll see who that is as we go. Let's begin here, number one, and see the first rule of church life. Look at Acts 6, 1. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. 
And if there were ever any truer words written about church, I don't know what they are. As a matter of fact, I think these are the truest words written in all the Bible, right? A complaint arose. And a few years ago, I was having a conversation with someone I think is safe to share now. If not, I'll find out later, I'm sure. And in that conversation, I was talking with a lady who was new here, a lady who was new here to our church community. And I asked her, like I normally ask you if you're new, how she found us and what brought her here. And she said, well, I've been visiting churches and I heard about your church from a friend. And so I'm here because I'm looking for the perfect church. End quote. Of course, you wonder why pastors can get so neurotic sometimes, right? Anyway, I looked right back at her and I said, hey, me too. Matter of fact, I said, I'll join you if you find it. Now, I don't think she ever came back. If you say, well, why would you say that to her? You know, that sounds kind of flippant. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. I said that because I knew, and you should know, Acts 6.1, because what it shows us is this. Think about it. There's, in this church, first church, miraculous power. Churches seeing lame people walk deep commitment to community care for the poor. There's great preaching, unbelievable worship, prayer meetings so dynamic There are earthquakes that happen, being led by people trained by Jesus himself, a church exploding with growth, and it still has problems. The church still has complaints against it from its own members. People still still feel not taken care of, perhaps overlooked, or in this case, discriminated against. Now, if you're like that person I talked to, uh, and you're here because something went wrong, in a past church life, or if you're here today and this is all sort of new for you, new to our community, and you think it's great, you know, you, you, found, you find that great parking spot every week and you think, thank you, Jesus, it's a sign, right? This is my church, my church home, and the coffee line, bar line is short. You think, man, yes, two for two, right? They remember your name at the door. Uh, your kids love their teacher, and you find the right spot in the room where it's not too loud, not too soft, right? Or you look at all the different people in here, you think, that's pretty cool, Right? No matter where you're coming from, if you're looking for something new, or if you're here and experiencing something great, or you're anywhere in between, no matter where you're from, let me introduce to you from this passage rule number one about the Christian church, right out of Acts 6 1. The first rule about church is there is no perfect church. The first rule about church is no perfect church. No matter how authentically amazing. And realistically, spirit-filled a church is a complaint or problem will arise. I mean, here in Jerusalem, Ananias and Sapphira lie. Uh, uh, Sapphira, they lie to the apostles and they die for it. Uh, later on, there's Corinth, right, where people are getting drunk. They're getting hammered during communion. It's crazy, right? Rome, the church potluck, dissolves into like tribal warfare about what people bring and they don't bring when they eat, when they can't eat. Uh, uh, Galatian churches were actually a bit racist against non-Jews. I could go on for minutes, but you get the point, Acts 1, 6, 1, shows us the first rule about church is there is no perfect church. You say, okay, right, fine, but what do I do with that? What do I do with that? All right, let me give you two ways, excuse me, to apply this to your own life, to your own family, to your own soul today that I think will help you navigate any church well, especially this beautiful, multi-ethnic, multi-generational idea. 
we call Mosaic Church. First way you apply rule number one is this to become, first of all, permanently disillusioned. Yeah, permanently disillusioned. You say, what's that, Morgan? A few weeks ago I was here, you talked about overcoming disillusionment. No, this is something different. Let me show you what I mean from my all-time favorite quote about church from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. His wonderful book called Life Together, speaking of Christian church. He says this quote, the serious Christian, that would be you, set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him or her a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. And what's he saying? Oh, he's saying, if you are or you ever have been disillusioned with church or people in a church, he says, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Matter of fact, he says, if you've ever been disillusioned, that's actually a God thing. He says, it's God's grace that speedily shatters dreams of perfect church. Why? Here's why. Because what is disillusionment other than the end of an illusion? The end of something that didn't exist and wasn't real in the first place. And what is the illusion people carry with them into church? Oh, the illusion is that church is a perfect place. Full of perfect people at the perfect size point for you at your moment in life. Full of perfect leadership, perfect music, perfect preaching, perfect children's ministry. With a perfect vision, mission statement that we live out perfectly every time. The illusion is the church ought to be full of people that are your identical demographic and get you the way you like to be get it and people communicate with you here in the time frame you like to be communicated with in the technological way you like to be technologically communicated with the illusion is that nothing ever goes wrong and no one will ever take advantage of you the illusion is you will always be thanked and everything you see will be uh, you do will be seen by someone who always has your best interest in mind but Bonhoeffer says it's God's grace that speedily shatters that dream. You say, how can that be? Here's what's going on. God is getting you and me, us, to love what he loves. What do you mean? I mean this. It's always easier to love a dream than it is to love people who, to be honest, can sometimes be a nightmare, right? But the fastest way to kill a church This church is by loving a dream more than loving the actual people next to you today. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest. Now, before I move on, let me define what being permanently disillusioned is doesn't mean it doesn't mean you stay in a place if clear abuse or heresies taking place it doesn't mean you get the right though because disillusionment's a good thing right it doesn't mean you get the right to rehash hurts and bitterness over and over calling it keeping it real but just really refueling your bitterness because that's easier than forgiving 
It doesn't mean you get to refuse to trust a leader. It doesn't mean we get to refuse to grow close to any more Christians. It doesn't mean we have an excuse to obey the Bible when it says we ought to believe the best about people. Nor does being permanently disillusioned mean you get to allow a church or a leader off the hook for their sin or abuse of others. So what does it mean? All right. To be permanently disillusioned is to love people as they are, not how we would want them to be. To be permanently disillusioned with church means to love the church as it is and not resent it for what it's not. I mean, how could, could you imagine if you're married, how could husbands, you know, how could a husband love a dream of what his wife was supposed to be? More than what she actually is. Women, could you imagine if your husband loved an idea of you or a picture of another woman more than he loved you? Uh Uh-oh. How could a wife look at her husband and say, I love a dream of what our marriage is supposed to be more than I love you sitting in front of me, right? You'll kill your marriage if you do that. Matter of fact, you'll crush any relationship in front of you this way. You'll crush your kids if you love what they are supposed to be more than you love them how they actually are. Do your children know they're loved beyond their performance? Children, listen, your kids know that if they are or not. Husbands, wives, does your spouse know you love them above and beyond their performance? Do your friends know you love them above and beyond their performance? And does Jesus know you love his church beyond its performance? It's way easier to love the idea of a church more than the church itself. Jesus never commands us to love an idea, but he does command us to love people. Which one are you doing? All right. That's the first way to apply that thought, the first rule of church. Second way, though, to apply the first rule of church is this. Don't just become permanently disillusioned. Become, at the same time, I love this, unashamedly hopeful. Unashamedly hopeful. Now, before you let that phrase totally underwhelm you, please understand that the English for the word hope is impossibly wimpy. Because when we say the word hope, we mean kind of like we cross our fingers. It's like 50% plus. Will you be there? I hope so. It's really not going to happen, right? Morgan, will the Texas Rangers win the World Series this year? I hope so. Not going to happen, right? But the Bible doesn't mean that at all. Here's what it means. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation in a victorious future. Confident expectation in a victorious future. You say, what does that look like? Here's what that looks like. Biblical hope means, here's the metaphor, knowing the final score before you watch the game. But final score before you watch the game. Because what happens if you say, for example, you've recorded uh, you know, the UT football game and you find out they win before you watch the game. I mean, how does that influence how you go through the next three hours of your life? Or less if you've got you know, direct TV or whatever. TiVo, it changes everything. Because before, when the team fumbled on the opening kickoff and they went down by 21 with Five minutes left in the fourth quarter, and they can't eke out a first down. What would happen to you normally? Well, normally you'd churn, right? You'd fume. you start getting grumpy. you start yelling at your buddy, right? You know, away with you, wife, bringing me nachos or whoever, you know. You know. And if you're not careful, you come to the point where you turn the whole thing off and give up. And that's exactly what people do with their lives, with the church. Things aren't going well, right? We're losing, fighting somewhere on the sidelines. We should probably turn it off and find something else to do. 
Why? Because you don't know how it ends. You don't know the final score. But I pray you never do that because we actually do know the final score. I pray God would burn in you today the words Jesus spoke, Matthew 16, where he says to Peter, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, what does this mean? It means that no matter how bad it looks, God has predestined his church in the end of triumph and therefore you should be unashamedly hopeful you can watch the game and win and no no matter what we're going to win and that's why martin luther the great reformer in his darkest hour when it seemed like the church in his day was doomed to sin perversion abuse of authority he wrote these words he says and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us we will not fear for god hath willed his truth to triumph through us now, what did he know he knew matthew 16 and therefore he could be unashamedly hopeful his heart had confidence in a victorious future that's the first rule of church no perfect church So let's be both simultaneously permanently disillusioned and unashamedly hopeful. All right. You say, Morgan, pretty good. That helps my thinking, helps my heart. But what can we do practically to solve the tough stuff that just comes up? Well, let me try to show you because this passage doesn't just show us the first rule of church. It actually goes on to show us the first solution to problems that arise in the church. Because after all here, a complaint arose in church. How did these early Christians fix it? How can we do the same? Number two, there's a first solution, a practical way to fix problems. And to see the solution, I want to back up for a moment and just look at what this complaint was. It's going to help us. It says, now at this time, disciples were increasing in number. The complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked. So who were these two groups? Well, first of all, they were all Jews. Same ethnic background, but they were Jewish people with different cultural backgrounds. Hebrew Jews, Hebraic Jews, they spoke Aramaic, grown up in Israel, culturally homogenous. But the Hellenistic or Greek Jews were those that had grown up speaking Greek, likely from another part of the Roman Empire, had either relocated to Jerusalem or had gotten converted on the day of Pentecost, and stayed. But either way, two different cultural groups in the church. Diverse place, diverse customs, diverse expectations. Oh, but this is fascinating. I want you to think for a moment about why this complaint arose. This complaint actually arose because of two good things going on. At first, reason, the complaint arose because the church was growing about that? It says, while the disciples were increasing in number. And because you're here at Mosaic, or at least visiting today, you're part of a growing church. As you likely know, we went to three services just in February. We've grown since then in the past 12 months by about, we've grown about 25%. We're over 1,000 weekly. At Easter, we're at 1,500. It's a good look at where our reach is. This stretches us. It stretches our systems. It stretches you. I know it does. stretches our vision. It's exciting, but it's painful. And because we're growing, complaints may just arise. (laughs) But if complaints are inevitable, I'd rather have them be because a church is growing and reaching people and touching lives, wouldn't you? Yes, you would. The second reason, though, that the complaint arose wasn't just because the church was growing. It was actually because the church was 
doing what it was supposed to be doing. The complaint, you see, wasn't centered around infidelity with a leader, financial mismanagement, but it was around something good. The complaint was centered around how widows were being fed and taken care of, centered around how food was being distributed, distributed to people who were in need. In other words, the complaint was around how to do a good thing better, how to do a good thing better. But here's the twist. Because of the diversity of the church, the complaint took on a new and complicated lens. The feeling was that it was that the majority group did not care about the minority group and that the lack of care directed towards people's mamas was culturally rooted. So how do they fix it? Oh, well, you may not have noticed it, but look who the disciples pick to fix the problem. The apostles, they chose, yes, people full of the Holy Spirit, crucial, and yes, People full of wisdom, also crucial. They were godly. They were trusted, all crucial. But beyond that, look at the names. All these names they picked were Greek names, minority culture names. They're not Jewish names like David, Joel, Ezekiel. They're Greek names. Prochorus, Nicholas, Timon, Stephen. In other words, these apostles are doing three things at once. First, they maintain their focus on serving God, the word of God, praying, But then second, they intentionally, purposefully raise up people not like themselves from the minority culture for the leadership to make sure the church is intentionally diverse in its leadership. And third, they're also raising up, in a sense, the average everyday Christian in the pew for one thing that will solve almost any problem in the church. And you can know what the one thing is, what that one solution is, from the one word that appears more than any other in the passage three times. It's the word service. The word service. In other words, when the question is asked, how does a healthy church handle complaints? How does a healthy church handle complaints? The answer is, get more people involved in ministry and service. And the answer to the second question, how does a spiritually healthy person vocalize a complaint? The answer is be willing to get involved personally to make it work like these Hellenistic Jews did. Another way of putting it, the solution to the complaints is you. That's not passing the buck philosophically. That's actually, hear me, watch this, following the Bible theologically. Let me show you. In that day, it was the job of a Jewish priest in the Jewish temple system to care for the poor. The poor would come to the temple, and one of the functions of the temple was to care for the poor and the widow because the Jewish people were required not just to give 10% of their income to the temple for the care of the priest, but another additional on top 10% for care of the poor. And the priests were the only ones who could handle the money to handle the food to give to the poor. These priests were special people who had to be born into the position. Oh, but now in the Christian church, look who is doing the job of a priest. Anyone, everyone, non-priests are priests. The non-special are special. The nobodies are the somebodies. These first servants here, you know, Stephen and the gang, these deacons, right? This is a word that means servant. These people are functioning like priests. Before it's only men born from one family. Now it's men and later women born from any family. 
any background. What's the implication? Oh, that the disciples, the apostles understand they are insisting that you know that every Christian is a priest. Every Christian's a priest. Why? They're thinking theologically. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, Acts 2 says he sent his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his followers and gave them gifts. Put gifts into them. And now we are all priests, not only because we have unlimited, unrestricted access to God, but because we're all been chosen, brought into God's first family. And we have a ministry, every person, you, to serve people in Jesus' name. Now, of course, at this point, you're saying, oh, that sounds nice. I like it when people serve in the church. But me, you know, I like something that's centered around me and my unique gifts and my personal schedule because I'm a busy person. And I know you are. But notice what these apostles don't do here. They don't send out a mass spiritual gifts test. To determine who can serve the widows. They appoint their very best people <coughs> to do what? Serve the poor. People say it all the time. And here it comes. People say it all the time. My teaching gift is being neglected. My leadership gift is being neglected. My worship gift is being neglected. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I do know one thing. I do know that in all my years of vocational ministry, no one's ever come to me and said, Morgan, my gift for serving in anonymity is being neglected. <laughs> what did Jesus say? The greatest in the kingdom is the teacher of them all. Now, the greatest in the kingdom, sorry, is the leader of them all. Greatest in the kingdom, what? Servant of all. Why? Because you and I, we don't have, hear me, we don't have the kingship of all believers, even though we have a kind of a kingdom together. There isn't the kingship of all believers because there's only one king and his name is Jesus. There is though we have the priesthood of all believers. And we're just little priests, lowercase p, whose calling is to serve and maybe like these heroes here, serve just wherever there is a need. Stephen here, oh, this guy, he's arguably the greatest preacher in the early church. We're going to look at his sermon next week, Acts chapter 7. It's the longest sermon recorded in the Bible. It was that memorable. But what does Stephen do? The best teacher, best leader they've got. Serves the widows, serves food, takes care of a needy. Does he complain he's being neglected? No. Seeks first the kingdom and God opens the doors for him. See, sacrificial service is the foundation of all authentic ministry. People ask me sometimes, Morgan, where did you learn to you know, do stuff like you do or how to lead or speak? You know what I say? I'll tell you, since you're asking. <clears throat> I learned ministry from driving vans. Driving vans. For literally years of my life, I was the van driver. It's <laughs> my wife laughing. At conferences for college and professional athletes. I'd drive vans all over cities in the U.S. I'd sleep on baggage claim floors all over the U.S. Haul luggage for people who you know, may or may not have treated me poorly. And I'd sit and I would sulk. And I would think, doesn't anybody see how great I am? Which just reveals how great I wasn't, right? Here I am, right? I'm thinking summa cum laude graduate. Division one baseball player, leader of my campus ministry group. I preach to thousands of people, right? I'm eating cold, fast food again at one in the morning. About to get up in three hours to take somebody to the airport again. Why wasn't I the speaker? 
people talking about me and my accomplishments. What had I forgotten? I was a priest, therefore a servant. I was acting like I had a kingship when God had given me a priesthood. And the van driving was the best thing that ever happened to me after meeting Jesus and my wife. Those vans taught me how to be an authentic Christian and the foundation of real lasting ministry. They taught me to be a priest and the value sometimes of even being overlooked because being overlooked forces you to make this choice. The the choice is, will I believe, will you believe that a person is actually in charge of your life or will you believe that Jesus is in charge of your life? Who holds your future? People or God? Some leader or God? Me? God, I hope not. Or God himself? I thought what the world needed was more me. But what the world needed, what the world needed was for me to be forgotten. Yeah. What did I need? Just to serve. And my roles change, but I'm doing the same thing. It's all the same. Driving vans, teaching kids, college students, church, service, service service. The solution to problems is, like it or not, is service. Service. Serving food. Little people and kids, maybe, getting hands dirty. Now, where can we, in the end, get the heart for that, for this solution? Number three, it's from looking at seeing the first deacon. First deacon. Look at this curious little phrase here at the end of the passage. It says, the word of God kept on spreading. Number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So this is telling you that on one hand, the solution worked. Getting more people serving one another in Christian community was actually this word. It was evangelistic. Getting people to serve one another was evangelistic. Having people in the church love one another more than their own schedule, more than their ability to travel without inhibition. People loving one another more than getting resented because they're on PCO yet again. That's for the insiders here, right? Having church members serve one another was evangelistic. It led people to Christ and a specific kind of person. Look at this right here. It says, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Why does it mention priests? Well, well, earlier in Acts, we see these priests persecuted the church. They hated these Christians. But now they're converting. Why? Oh, I think, I think. It was because these priests actually saw the Christians being real priests. These priests, whose job it was to take care of the poor, saw people whose job it wasn't taking care of the poor putting other people's interests, other ethnic groups' interests above their own, living the dream out, serving, ministering without any thought for self. Now, where do you suppose these first Christians and deacons got that idea from? Oh, yeah, from the first deacon, the first servant of the church, the first servant of your life, Jesus of Nazareth. Who did Jesus care for? least of these. Who did he move toward? Oh, people of other ethnic backgrounds. What did he give? His life for those who hated him. He himself said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he gave his life to ransom you. And when we serve, when we do the same, we are paying the price ourselves to ransom other people's lives. 
and save others in a smaller way. Ernest Gordon was a British soldier captured by the Japanese in World War II, and he, he was made to work with others, with thousands of others, on what was called the Railroad of Death, which was a valley along the Kwai River in Thailand. They made a movie about it. And the, the prisoners of war were made to work there on the railroad. The conditions were so awful, so brutal, that between one and 2,000 men died for every five miles of railroad built. And it got so bad that Ernest Gordon, in his memoirs, he said that the men were all at each other's throats and they went back to the law of the jungle. He said, quote, death was everywhere, its conditions worsened, our lives became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. Formerly, we had huddled together because of our fears, believing there was safety in numbers. We still had shown consideration for one another. Now that was gone completely swept away. Existence, he said, had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against us. We existed just to survive. We lived by the rule of the jungle, red in tooth and claw, the evolutionary survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. But then he wrote, he said, one afternoon something happened. He said there was a shovel that went missing at the end of the day. The officer in charge of the regiment became enraged and he demand, demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. And when no one in the squadron volunteered the missing shovel, officer got out his gun and threatened to kill everyone in the group on the spot. But then suddenly one man stepped forward. I took it, he said. Officer put away his gun, picked up the shovel, and beat to death the man on the spot. But later, at the second tool check that day, no shovel was missing. There'd actually been a miscount at the first check. And the word spread like wildfire throughout the camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save everyone else. Ernest Gordon said, this incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Then another man was caught trading with local people the ties for medicine to give to a dying comrade and was caught and was killed for it. But he submitted to the execution, reading his Bible now up till the very end. He said, death was still with us, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. And then he said, later, when the death camp was liberated by the American soldiers, he and his surviving comrades lined up to forgive the officers who had killed them. They said, no more death. No more death. What had happened? No. The sacrificial love and service of one man who laid down his life, changed a jungle back into a human community. What did those men need to pull them back from the law of the jungle? Oh, they needed an example, right? And we, can you see, have a greater example. His name is Jesus, whose love and power enables us to serve and create the kind of community through service we really wanted all along. Hear me, this church will never be built on the gifts of a few, but on the sacrifice of many. What's the first rule of church? Oh, there's no perfect church, no perfect place. What's the solution for any problem we face? It's always service by God's priests and members. And how can we get there? Oh, by saying yes to Jesus and his love and grace and ransom toward us.